0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ryan Curry about theological aesthetics. So we cover all sorts of topics like what does it mean to have a theological aesthetic? How does culture and art relate? What does it mean to have a theological aesthetic that's based on the theology of the cross? Why is beauty related to glory? What does it mean for the spiritual sense to transform the physical sense? And how does this all relate to something like the beatific vision? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And as we do with all of our podcasts, if you're new to listening, we try to encourage and cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And so that typically looks like just being open and honest and having frank discussions with others whom we may disagree with or agree with on a wide range of topics and being open to being corrected, but also being open to saying, I think you're wrong here. And that's what makes it really, really fun. We think it's a safe space to be robustly confessional and to be happy about it, but to also be uh, open and charitable toward other people's thoughts and ideas. Now, on today's episode, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Ryan Curry. So Dr. Curry has done a, a lot of work on theological aesthetics. He wrote his dissertation on this and has done a significant amount of thinking on it. And I would guess if there is a list of the favorite sort of ammunition pieces for Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox against Protestants, this is one of the top ones. It's got to be. It's up there to where they love to say, Protestants, man, they have no theology of beauty. Look at their churches. They look like pizza huts. They look like strip malls. They are in strip malls. They don't have cathedrals. They don't have any sense of awe or wonder or beauty. And yet here we are, with uh, Ryan, who's done a significant amount of work on theological aesthetics from as a Protestant. So I'm looking forward to this, to discussing the topic in general. Before we jump in, Ryan, tell me a little bit about yourself, and then I want to know what was it that really piqued your interest and drew you to thinking about this topic in particular.
1: Yeah, so thanks again for, for having me. Uh, I've been a, a teacher overseas for the last few years, uh, since 2015, We first were in Mongolia teaching at a Bible college and was there for a few years and then moved to Liberia uh, in West Africa. And in January, I'll be moving to the UAE with my family to be teaching at a seminary there. So that's a a short bio on who I am. What uh, led me to study Baltazar at first was actually Um, I did my uh, MDiv and THM at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and so I studied under John Piper, and John Piper's Christian hedonism was really influential. Just um, Piper describes his ministry as uh, seeing, savoring, and showing uh, the supreme worth and beauty of God. So as I thought about what Piper was saying and really reflected and just wanted to study more about God's beauty in particular. And uh, some of the things that Piper was saying that I, I was starting to wonder, okay, where does, this, where does this fit in systematic theology? Like not a lot of people talk about the beauty of God. So that got me on this uh, rabbit trail of, of looking into the, the history of the theology of beauty and led me to uh, Baltazar, who I think has a lot of similar things to say, uh, surprisingly. To Piper and um, a lot of very very different things, obviously, but uh, it was really Piper that led me to Baltazar in the in the first place.
0: Okay, perfect. So let's go ahead and start with a baseline definition or a basic definition of what theological aesthetics is, at least in your mind and your opinion. And then I'd love to hear, as a follow up, how do things like art and culture relate, and how does that really fit into the vision of theological aesthetics?
1: Yeah. So. What is theological aesthetics and that's that's actually a big problem within theological aesthetics because there's been a whole lot of ambiguity on what is this thing that we talk we're talking about what is theological aesthetics and a lot of times in in the field of theological aesthetics, you see people reference Balthazar in particular, but what you realize is that balthazar kind of uh, really popularized theological aesthetics, but then it shifted to a whole different um, ball game from what Baltazar developed as theological aesthetics. Uh, it really shifted into more of a discussion of art and theology. and specifically, there's two basic streams in in theological aesthetics. One is the more Balthazar. Baltasarian type of theological aesthetics and one is the uh, more approach that was developed by Karl Rahner and so Rahner's approach is much more uh, getting into the weeds a little bit here but it's it's much more liberal it's much more classically liberal because it's based on his what he calls the uh, supernatural existential and really kind of confuses the creator and the creature and so Rahner would say that <clears throat> he can look at art and, and see God. He can see the infinity of God in that art. So Balthazar's approach was actually much more different. He had a, a stronger creator-creature distinction. And so Balthazar had a stronger creator-creature distinction and is much more orthodox, really. So the, to the question of how does culture and art relate, that is is—it's uh, actually what Balthazar is um, saying that theological aesthetics is not. It's not about art and culture. It's about more, yeah, who is God and what has he done?
0: Okay. So this is good. So before we move on, I'd love for you to tease out a little bit on Baltazar. So I think you, we've mentioned him several times already and he features significantly in your dissertation, but I would guess or imagine that, I don't know, 60, 70% of our listeners or regular listeners are not very familiar with him and his writings, his context, his history. They may know his name, but they don't really know much about him. So give me a little bit of the brief bio on who he is, what he's writing about, what are his influences, those sort of things to help us place a little bit of the context for the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. So um, actually just my, my mother-in-law, she was joking that, um, that I spent so much time writing on someone from Harry Potter or from <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Um, just, yeah, because people think, okay, Balthazar – isn't that one of the, one of the three wise men or something like that. Um, and yeah, so especially in Protestant circles and and evangelical circles, especially where, uh, people are like, you're studying who, like, (laughs) um, and, and just have no idea. So he's actually considered one of the most, um, influential Catholic theologians of the 20th century. So he, he would be considered, uh, one of the resourcement theologians, so really influenced by de Lubach and um, later he was friends with uh, Joseph Ratzinger and um, and Pope John Paul II, and so really in that stream of, of thought, kind of a a, a centrist. Uh, when you think of more the liberal side of Catholicism and then the the far conservative side of Catholicism, he was more centrist in his um, in his approach to Theology, But he was born in 1905 in Switzerland, and so he, he grew up uh, in Switzerland um, and went to uh, school in Zurich. And he actually, his study was, um, I guess not surprisingly given his topic, was in literature and in music. So he wasn't, um, he, he, he often boasted that he wasn't an official theologian, but even though he, he really was, um, but you can see how his interest in music and, and literature really influenced and uh, brought, was brought into his theological aesthetic. So as a, a, like, um, a centrist, maybe you could say, in, in Catholicism, what he was really trying to do was, was see how like, the, the modern questions, the, the questions of modernity could be answered from an orthodox standpoint. So his critique of the of the uh, more conservative branches of Catholicism and especially the Neoscholastic uh, neo uh, Thomist branches of theology was he says yes these uh, these branches are answering the questions that modernity asks but they're answering it in such a way that no one's listening and so what he tries to do is it's really an apol an um an apologistic approach to theology for the modern world. So he was uh, accused of being a liberal by many of those more conservative, um, but then also considered consider way too conservative for uh, people who were to the left of him.
0: Well, I've got all sorts of funny jokes that I think I could insert at this point based on the spectrum <laughs> he inhabits, but I want to know a little bit about his critique against Protestantism. What is that? What is What's going on there?
1: Yeah, so... His, his critique was uh, really, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, that Protestants have no theological account of beauty. They have no theology of beauty. And his uh, two main villains that he really goes after are Luther and Kierkegaard. So for, for Luther, what he said, and, and surprise, surprise, right? Um, obviously, the bad guy is Luther. Uh, when you're coming at it from a Catholic perspective. But what he said about Luther is that Luther developed this cold methodological stance that just gave birth to all sorts of schism after schism and just uh, proliferated this cold methodological stance that was um, always at war with others. And so what he says is in... um, in his typical rhetoric is that Protestantism bears the indelible mark of Cain. And so that's, that's pretty much theological smack talk. If you're going to say Man, that that person um, and that um, group of people bears the indelible mark of Cain, um, it's a, it's a pretty big critique. And he says that it, what Luther did was he transformed evangelism or the gospel um, into Protestantism. So Instead of the good news, it's now uh, a gospel of protest. And so, what he he then goes on to say is that Kierkegaard was really the one who um, who furthered this in his stages or or his spheres of of existence. And he said that Kierkegaard was the one who really opposed the aesthetic to the the religious and and the ethical, or the ethical and the religious and um, Interiorize the faith in such a way that it cut off beauty from from all of of the rest of theology and and religion itself. So his his critique, especially, is that um, yeah, Protestantism has cut off beauty from theology. It's cut off beauty from religion. And but it's interesting though because usually what What we do, and I think evangelicals have heard that uh, critique of Catholicism, like you meant that uh, you, like you mentioned that we meet in in pizza huts or um, elementary schools, and, and where's our physical um, physical uh, appreciation for physical beauty, but what Baltazar says is is actually that protestants have they t- whenever they talk about beauty, they always talk about. Um, a, a beauty of how does art and theology intersect. So that's what what Protestants always talk about. So it's almost counterintuitive uh, because people usually hear Balthazar's critique and they say, well, what, what we have to do is to make more beautiful things or, or have more beauty in evangelical churches or use more art in worship. But that's actually not what Balthazars saying He's saying, no, what the Protestants need to do is they need to develop the theology of beauty.
0: Yeah, so I don't know if you have the answer to this question, but I started to think as you were talking and started making some connections in my head. and I don't know if they're accurate or not, so I want to, I want to ask. So you've mentioned main interlocutors are those like Luther and Kierkegaard. He's in, he goes to school in Zurich. Does he interact significantly at all with those like Zwingli or Calvin? I mean, Zwingli, obviously, they're in Zurich. Um, why? Why not? What's going on there?
1: Yeah, he does. Um, so the thing about Baltazar is he he interacts with basically everyone. <laughs> um, and his he's such a prolific writer um, that... And he he does it in such a way... Like, he's even... Even though he says Luther and Protestantism bears the indelible mark of Cain, he's he's pretty generous overall. And he has a lot of rhetoric, but he, he's generous overall. Um, I can't remember of any actual interaction with with Zwingli, so that's a, a good point. Um, the the little that I've read of him with Calvin, um, it's pretty pretty negative, but it's mostly mediated through his interaction with Karl Barth, because Barth was very influential in in his theology. So um, it was limited, but, yeah, mediated through Barth. Yeah, so
0: I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking, if you want to have an opponent, or at least an easier opponent, you wouldn't go to Luther. you go to someone like Zwingli, who's much more radical and much stronger, especially in an ascetic sort of mindset.
1: Yeah. On on some things, like... um, I think Zwingli was more open to to using the philosophers than Luther was, and so like that's a big thing that um in Balthazar's project is he's very positive about using Plato and philosophers, and so I think he would have appreciated a lot that of that what Zwingli said about the philosophers, yeah, um, I can't
0: remember the yeah. exact quote, but I think Zwingli says something along the lines of ushering in Moses right alongside Plato yeah, or something right, like that, exactly. to where there's really no and, distinction uh, whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and that's Balthazar. So Balthazar, would be, he'd be there for that.
0: So you have some sections in the dissertation writing on aesthetics and the theology of the cross, and I'm sure those who are familiar with the categories and the terms are probably going to make a recognition to say, oh, theology of the cross, Luther. So, is this supposed to be a Luther-inspired argument? Are there is this drawing on Luther material? Is or is it completely distinct, and, and it just happens to be an overlap of terminology?
1: Yeah. So, what what I did in the dissertation was um, just tried to show that that Luther especially had um, a good contribution to a theology of beauty, and there's actually a lot of work recently on luther's theological aesthetic and and what that means and so what i wanted to do was was show how uh, protestants and and even evangelicals have a theological aesthetic it's just uh, slightly underdeveloped and so the the thing with baltazar is and my main critique of him and his theological aesthetic is he's got a really underdeveloped theology of sin and um what I, I wish you would have heard Luther's theology of sin and the bondage of the will more, because for Balthazar, beauty in creation is um is basically an unqualified good. And the difference with with Luther and what Luther did, especially in the um uh, in, in the Heidelberg disputation in, in 1518, is he he shows how um, even the best gifts of God are uh, idolatrous and can be used in the worst way if if they're in the hands of a sinful humanity that hasn't passed through the cross, hasn't passed through the judgment of the cross and, and in faith in, in Christ. Um, and then w- Luther makes the point that once sin is dealt with once we as sinners have passed through the cross, then, and he says this in, in thesis 24 in that Heidelberg uh, disputation, that uh, if we don't do that, we can misuse the, the gifts of God in the worst way. And so what that also implies on the positive side is the way to receive the good gifts of God is to first pass through the cross um, and so what he would say to Baltazar's approach is um, Baltazar's approach to beauty is inherently idolatrous because what Baltazar is saying is beauty basically can redeem us. Um, and Baltazar had a lot of, of things to say about, say, Carl Rahner's Anonymous Christian, where basically in Rahner's approach, everyone's a Christian. And so, um Balthazar really critiques that, but Balthazar himself actually ends up in the same position because beauty, in effect, reveals Christ. And the problem is not sin. Um, in in Balthazar's uh, retelling of it, sin is basically amnesia, that we've forgotten what Christ did. And so this leads to his his universalism and, and all sorts of things where I think he's forgotten— he, He's forgotten the the central place of the gospel, which is what the theology of the cross really is, that, that, no, we have to pass through the cross, through the judgment of the cross. Christ has to bear our curse. And it's only then that we can see and enjoy beauty rightly once we pass through the cross.
0: Yeah, okay. So one of the things you work on significantly, or at least you develop quite a bit in this dissertation, is the concepts of theology—not theology— uh, beauty and glory. I guess that is partly theology, but beauty and glory is the, are the topics and the ideas. So you work this out quite a bit, contrasting, I guess, comparing them and sort of intertwining them together. Is this something that's completely unique to you, original to you, or is this something you're drawing on various sources that are sort of like random pieces of rubble and you're building something out of it? What is that, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so this was one of the things that, really interests me in the first place in studying this and just thinking about okay what is the difference between glory and, and beauty and and even with um, with uh, Piper uh, um, he oftentimes will use beauty and glory interchangeably and and I think you see that as I look through just popular evangelical writings um, I think that's that's a common thing a common thread that they use beauty and glory interchangeably. So just trying to tease out what is the difference between glory and beauty. Um, but you also see in in the tradition and through theologians, there's everyone approaches it slightly differently. Uh, so uh, Athanasius ap- approaches it differently than um, than say John of Damascus and um, Augustine um Approaches it in a, in a different way than than Luther would um, but but a lot of times it seems like when people talk when theologians talked about glory, um, they were oftentimes talking about uh, an essential um, attribute of God like the the sum like Bart especially I think uh, really takes the tradition and develops it well, and he says that glory is the, the sum of God's manifold perfections. So it's, it's the sum of who he is. And, uh, he brings simplicity in there and and just says, okay, glory is just who God is, um, the sum of his manifold perfections. Um, but when we think about our glo- beauty, the beauty of God, different, different theologians developed it differently. So like Edwards and Aquinas, um, were, were very similar in how they developed beauty. Um, and, but, but Bart says, you know, we should really think of beauty as a, a subset of glory. So it's, it's like the, the external, the external part of, of glory that, that draws, woos, and attracts a sinful humanity. So I think there's been recent work by a guy named Jonathan King who who talks about beauty as a quality of glory, and I I really like how how King says that it's a it's a quality of glory, um, but there is uh, and that's how I would end up saying uh, I think that's the best way to say it, but it's there's a whole lot of ambiguity just because of the the interrelationship between glory and beauty, and I'd say they're the two sides of the same coin. Um, glory is that objective quality of, of God's worth, uh, his, his, um, kavod, his weightiness. And then beauty is like, like Bart saying, it's, it's that quality that draws us or attracts us to God's glory. So they're referring to the same thing, but one is talking about the objective side. And I talking about the subjective side.
0: Well, you've managed to usher in both Edwards and Aquinas on the same team. So I think you've managed to probably make everybody mad uh, from all sides. <laughs> make of that whatever you will. Now, you mentioned John of Damascus, or I've seen other people say like John of Damascene. And I'm going to be honest with you, I have no idea what that means or why he would be called that. I'm probably w- stupid. Apparently, that is a very very likely solution so I'm totally open to being corrected if you shouldn't be calling him John of Damascus or something no. else
1: uh, I mean I'm on I'm in the same boat I, I just say John of Damascus um, yeah so I think I think you're good
0: so he has his whole defense of icons along with the seventh along with the seventh Ecumenical council so how does that sort of logic really factor into your account impact your account influence it
1: yeah so I do spend some time, um, developing his, his work in, in relation to theological aesthetics, and mostly as kind of a, like a a flip side of Augustine. So, for example, Augustine is extremely, um, positive when it comes to material beauty, but he always has this suspicion of, of material beauty, and wants to get away from it, and, Um, So just, yeah, for example, art and especially theater for Augustine was, um, you just didn't, you didn't touch that. And um, a lot of creative beauty, he was rightly concerned about what Luther would later develop as that bondage to sin, that we're going to use beauty in the wrong way. So he had a high um, nervousness when it comes to created beauty. And the arts. Um, John of Damascus, on the flip side, he really develops uh, Athanasius's arguments about the uh, the incarnation of Christ and how God God created the world. Material is therefore good, and so John of Damascus is kind of like the the flip side. Where I think I think you need both. I, you need. Both Augustine's nervousness about uh, misusing created beauty, but you also need John of Damascus's really um, glorification of matter. He says, I, "I venerate matter because Christ became flesh, and Christ became matter." And so, I think that John of Damascus goes too far in his defense of the icons. I, I think. Icons are idolatrous, but where I think uh, he he can help us in his theology is just reaffirming the the wonder of of material creation, and specifically the that art is helpful, that art art is a good thing, and that's a specifically uh, an argument that he
0: developed from Athanasius. So this is a little bit off topic. So you can pun it if you want. Might be a little bit of a spicy take. I don't know. You tell me. But as you've been talking and I've been thinking, why is it that it seems to be that anyone who's interested in aesthetics or art ends up being more on the liberal end of the spectrum? I mean, where are the conservatives who say, "Yes, I want to champion and care about art"? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a a really good question, and I think that. That Baltazar can really help us with that, and because really what what Baltazar says, and, and all those guys, all those more more liberal evangelicals would really pay a whole lot of lip service to Baltazar, but they're they're really the ones that I think have no idea what what Baltazar is saying. Um, so Baltazar is really he valued the performative arts and the more dynamic arts um, like drama and, and music. And um, he was actually very um, sympathetic to iconoclastic tendencies. And so where I think Baltazar can help evangelicals is to see, so for, for Baltazar, the pinnacle of beauty is Jesus Christ himself. Um, so, Jesus is the self showing of God. so the the transcendentals that, that Balthazar goes after they all they all focus on and reveal Jesus Christ. And so what Balthazar says is by fixing our gaze on Jesus um, that that pinnacle of beauty, Jesus himself, um, it transforms our lives so that we, we live beautiful lives. Um, and so in Baltazar's account, the, the beauty that he's after is the beauty of the Christian life. And he says the highest form of beauty in the world is, is the Christian form. And what he's saying is the Christian form is, like C.S. Lewis would say, it's a little Christ walking around in the world. And so He's much more all about the, the dynamic of, of the, the lives rather than the, the physical um, a, a beautiful cathedrals, uh, beautiful art. And what, how I think that a theology of cross even more complements that is that, look, if, if, you, if you are a, a, a person, an artist, say, who is a theologian of the cross you've you've taken your art and your very self and and you've repented of your sin and and you've passed through the cross and you're creating art that is by the worldly standards it will never uh, it will never be anywhere near the elite art it will be it'll be considered ugly but that art in and of itself is honoring and glorifying to God so it's it's really not about the physical object itself it's about who we are as as christians
0: so you talk about the spiritual sense transforming the physical sense what exactly does that mean
1: yeah so baltazar has a lot to say about the the spiritual sense and there's a a good work that's recently been done in the last 10 years by um Mark uh, McEnroy, Mark McEnroy on Balthazar and the spiritual sense. And so, what what Baltazar? Balthasar actually talked about the spiritual senses, and and what he meant was that the the spiritual s- senses. And so, this is where it gets a little bit convoluted, and I disagree with Balthazar, But he would say basically everyone has the spiritual senses. So. Um, you can see God in in the beauty of creation. So your your eyes, for example, when you see a beautiful tree or a beautiful or the ocean, you can you can in effect see God. So it's a spiritual sense. It's the, the faculty for spiritual sense perception. And and likewise with touch, like you can you can touch um, something soft and, and that reveals something spiritual. Um, So from a Protestant perspective, that that simply doesn't work uh, because we say, okay, we are, um, yes, there's common grace and and true things are revealed about God through our spirit, our our physical senses. Um, But we also say we are dead in sin. Like it it doesn't, we we, we believe in Romans one where we say, okay, yes, we take those things and we uh so we would say we trade the truth of God for a lie but we also trade the beauty of God for a lie we we substitute physical beauty and make it into an idol um rather than following after the the true beauty of God so the spiritual sense i think you could just point to it exegetically and and say Ephesians chapter 1 where the eyes of the heart are opened so that you can um, you can see God in and, and, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 where um, you can see the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so you have this spiritual sense where you can apprehend or, or see the beauty of God through faith. And um, then there's a, a second step to that. So you have this spiritual sense that you can see and perceive the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ in a way that, that those who don't know God cannot, um, but we can see him. And so that spiritual sense transforms our physical senses so that now um, we can see the beauty of God in everything. So so now, um, now that we've been regenerated, now that we have this spiritual sense, now we can see the glory of God in creation. We can see the beauty of God in creation and um so there's edwards actually edwards scholarship has a, a lot of talk about the spiritual sense as well and there's different different approaches people ask the question okay does the spiritual sense have nothing to do with the physical senses or does it or do does they kind of uh is it kind of like a hand in glo- glove sort of thing where the spiritual sense guides the physical senses so that we can perceive God through creation. And I think the best answer is the spiritual sense, our, our sight of Christ, our being drawn to the beauty of Christ, transforms how, how we see and perceive and hear and, and touch and taste and smell and so that we can truly see the beauty and glory of God in all of, all of creation through our physical senses.
0: Okay. So is the spiritual sense then some sort of like sixth sense then?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's actually one of the questions. Is it a, a, a sixth sense or is it um, – um, or it does it have nothing to – so the three possibilities are is it a sixth sense? Um, does it have nothing to do with the physical senses or – um, does it inhabit the the, the five senses or, or, or the more the, the physical senses of the body? And so I think it's um, best to say that the spiritual sense transforms, transforms it. So it's not like um, so if you think of it in the in the like arguments of, okay, grace in nature. So um, does grace, um. Just how does grace relate to nature? And so I would say that um, grace, the, the spiritual, the spiritual sense, relates to nature, the um, the physical senses, in that it, it transforms them. So, if you think about like the Garden of Eden, why did why did God create these senses? Um, why did God create sight and and smell? And touch. And and I think it's because he wanted us to perceive his beauty and be drawn to his beauty and his glory through creation. And um, so you get this beautiful thing in in poetry, like Milton, for example, um, in Paradise Lost, he he talks about when, when God speaks, a beautiful aroma fills the air. And so the god created our physical senses in order to reveal more of him and so us the spirit and we lost that in the fall and so what the spiritual sense does is it it restores it restores that original intention that god created the senses
0: for okay again i'm going to ask another question that I don't know. Maybe it's off topic outside your research area. I don't know exactly, but I want to know what you think about the beatific vision and how that might fit into aesthetics and this whole topic and discussion. I think there's been a significant influx of research and interest in the beatific vision over the last five to 10 years. So I imagine a lot of our listeners would probably be interested in hearing how this connects.
1: Yeah. So, um, I would say that theological aesthetics kind of assumes the beatific vision. It uh so it it recognizes that the happiness of man, uh, mankind is to, perceive, to to see God and to know God and to be drawn to God. So um, the the goal of the Christian life is to see God. So like um, Psalm 27, I think it is says, um, God says, seek my face, and, and and the psalmist responds, Your face, O Lord, will I seek. And so, theological aesthetics, in particular, uh, tries to answer the question, how how do we how do we seek God's face now? And and specifically, what theological aesthetics does is it deals with. How are we to how do we perceive God's face on the way to glory? So um the beatific vision will be experienced in its fullness in in um in the eschaton, in, in heaven. And I, I really love one of the things that Baltazar says is, is he says that in Revelation um the the new Jerusalem comes down to, to earth rather than um, the the church going up into heaven. And so what he's emphasizing there is that a lot of times when we, when we think about seeing God and seeing his face, we have kind of a more nebulous view of, okay, what does it look like to behold the infinite? Um, and I think that, um, what theological aesthetics reminds us is God has created us um, with a body and with these physical senses, and um, our sight of God will be mediated through through those physical senses. So we'll see Jesus Christ face to face. We'll see the the risen Lord um, and Savior Jesus Christ face to face, and we'll we'll walk in the glory of God, and our senses in the new heavens, and the new earth will function in a way that they were designed to. They'll, they'll, des- they'll perfectly, all of creation will perfectly reveal the glory of God. And um, C.S. Lewis actually has a really interesting uh, discussion of this in his sermon on transposition, where he talks about how the resurrected body will still have senses and but God's infinite, um, uncontainable glory will be mediated to our physical senses. So um, it's it's a mystery in one sense. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, theological aesthetics has everything to do with with that vision of God. Uh, but it starts to ask ask the question: How do we see that now? And how do our how does our sense perception work with that?
0: All right. So the last thing I want to know at this point is if people want to read more of your work or follow along with what you're doing and the research you're putting out, is there a place that they can go? Do you have a website? Do you have a faculty page? Do you have an academia.edu? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So I, um, people can, can access my dissertation at the South African theological seminary page. Um, and otherwise, I just recently started a blog, and I've been inconsistent with that. So, I, I, uh, it'd be foolish for me to say they could keep up with me there. <laughs> Maybe presumptive, <laughs> but I'm gonna
0: try. All right. So I think I lied. I do have one more question for you. You recently graduated from your PhD. So I want to ask you, what's the one piece of advice you might give to an incoming PhD student about what to do? Maybe it's something to avoid or it's something to, to pursue. We've got a lot of listeners who are sort of in that phase or a lot of listeners who are uh, supervisors of PhD students. And so just thinking about this, you're, you're pretty close to it. So it's fresh. So just tell me, like, what's the piece of advice you'd give?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was just in June, so very, very recent. Um yeah, I think I I didn't know too much about Baltazar when I first um when I first dipped into him and he actually jokes at one point that many dissertations will crash against the rocks of his of his writing. So if someone says that you probably shouldn't write a dissertation on, on that person Uh, (laughs) just because, okay. So Baltazar is extremely nebulous and hard to get a grasp on. So one, one suggestion I would make, which I think I did well was write on something that interests you, um, that, that can be edifying, that can feed your soul. Uh, And for me, I wrote uh, writing my dissertation was kind of like a, a positive escape from the trials of cross-cultural ministry and so write on something that will fuel your soul and your delight in god uh and, and won't drain you and won't drain your your family um but pick someone something that is not something that's not nebulous <laughs> and slippery which i felt like baltazar could be at times
0: all right, well thanks Ryan. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed talking with you about this topic. So all of you who are listening, go check out Ryan's work, keep up with his blog. Maybe this will motivate him to write a little bit more, having a significant number of new readers or yeah, I guess it would be readers. Unless people are listening to the pd listening to stuff in their car now. I mean, what is the, I feel like the AI is doing everything to where people aren't even reading anymore, but that's a whole different discussion. I'm not going to go there. This has been a great time, Ryan. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your research, the work you've done here. As a reminder, for those of you who are listening, support these people that you find helpful or encouraging. If you've learned something here, if you found something useful, reach out to our, our guests and just drop an encouraging note. No one's going to ever be annoyed by an encouraging email. Don't ask any questions. Just say, hey, I listened to you on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. I was very th- moved or, or thankful or or." thought provoked about topic X or when you said this and leave it at that and say, thanks for your work. Those sort of things will really encourage people like Ryan and others. So I encourage you to do that whenever you find something that is of use, even if you disagree with it, if it helped you think about it in a better way, I encourage you to reach out in those ways. Um, No one can ever have enough encouragement. So, so take the time to do that. I encourage you to do that to encourage others. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.